Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut. Here's what's coming up on today's show. Welcome to episode 22 of the Healthy Gut Podcast, and today I'm joined by Daniela Paloni, who's a licensed marriage and family therapist, community speaker, chronic illness advocate, and writer in Westlake Village, California. She is the founder of Westlake Village Counseling, where she specializes in supporting those living with chronic illness, pain, invisible illness, and anxiety. And she offers community presentations where she covers these topics and ways to manage them through mindfulness, tapping, health psychology, and more. Daniela's own health challenges with SIBO, chronic pain, and illness also led her to becoming an admin for the largest SIBO support group on Facebook for the past three years. In her spare time, she enjoys cooking, hiking, being silly with her family and having tea or some wine with her friends. And on today's chat, Daniela and I talk all about her own personal journey with SIBO from diagnosis through to treatment and what life looks like for her today. We also talk about the SIBO Facebook group and its history, why they started it and its role it plays in the SIBO community. And I know that I myself used it very heavily during my treatment phase with my SIBO treatment and I now love to be able to give back to the group as much as I can. We also talk about the cost of SIBO, both the financial and the emotional cost and how we can develop our own health dream team and much, much more. So I hope you enjoy today's episode with Daniela Paloni. Welcome to the show, Daniela Paloni. It's great to have you on the Healthy Gut Podcast today. Well, thank you, Rebecca, for having me. It's a, a real pleasure to be on your show. Yeah, and we connected actually through the SIBO support uh, discussion group, which is a, a now quite an enormous Facebook group for people with SIBO. And I'd love for you to share a little bit about your own personal journey with SIBO and uh, and talk more about that Facebook group. Well, it's really interesting because that part of my journey has a lot to do with the SIBO group. And actually, the SIBO group at this point, I just checked today, is at just over 14,000 members, which is um, pretty astounding considering it's only been around since January of 2014. Um, and so, honestly, the beginnings of that group and the, the way it got started was really um, a game changer for me in being able to 
learn more about my my diagnosis of SIBO and how to manage it. And so I am so grateful um, that it got started to begin with. And um, yeah, and I don't know, there's there's a fun little story uh, behind it, which I think, you know, sometimes people who are in the group don't necessarily know about. And really, it got started because of the first SIBO symposium that happened in January of 2014, uh, where Dr. Seebecker, Dr. Pimentel, Dr. Sandberg-Lewis, um, and others uh, presented at the um, at the clinic up in Portland. And so I, I don't know how I found out about it, but I found out about it. I decided to attend via webinar, webinar excuse me, and, um, and a lot of other people did too. And so the nice part about attending it like that was, A, I didn't have to travel, so I got to stay home and watch it on my computer, and it was a weekend event. But also they gave us the opportunity to have a chat box just for the webinar attendees. So we all got to meet each other um, that way. And so that's how I met Kenny King, who is the creator of the SIBO uh, support discussion group. Um, and that's how I met other people as well. And so we were all just so excited to be in a space with other people like us um, that we didn't want that to go away. We wanted to try and figure out how we can keep these connections going. And so there was a lot of brainstorming. And at the end of the day, it was, you know, decided Facebook would be the best uh, way to go. And at the time, I didn't even have a Facebook account. So I was like, well, I will be more than happy to get everyone's email who wants to be in this group. Um, but beyond that, I'm kind of a fish out of water. I don't really know uh, anything about Facebook, which is really funny. And so Kenny was nice enough to, you know, um, actually get it going and starting it up. But it was really um, a group effort. It was a community effort. And just having that opportunity for all of us to like get to know each other, um, to learn about each of our specific uh, conditions and symptoms was really eye-opening. Um, because prior to that, I was really in the dark. I had no, I had no idea what, what was going on. I, I didn't know where to look. I didn't know what to research. And um, the nice part too was the people who did attend in the webinar who were the founding members of the group, a lot of them were also uh, health practitioners. Um, maybe they were just health practitioners and some of them also had SIBO. So it was really a great collaborative um, little group that we got started with about maybe 20 members. Um, and then obviously from there, it just skyrocketed to where it is now. So it holds a special place in my heart, as cheesy as that might sound, but I'm very grateful to to be a part of that community because it it gave me so much. And I, I, I mirror the sentiment. I, it was the first place, um, the first Facebook group I found when I went online and started to research SIBO after being given the diagnosis. And I felt so alone and isolated and lost. And you know, whilst I felt relief at having this diagnosis, I was, I just thought, gosh, no one I know has this, mm -hmm. and no one understands what I'm going through. And then I found this Facebook group, which I think at the time when I when I got into it, there was probably only about maybe seven or eight thousand people in it. So it has grown significantly in the time since I first got involved. And it was really great to know that you could go online and you could be having a rough day and you could put a put a post up and people from all around the world would be there to support you 
it was really comforting to know that. It was, it is really comforting to know that. And that's the thing I like too, is it's all around the world. Like, I mean, I, the people who I met at the SIBO um, symposium, um, many of them are still in the group. And, and a lot of us, maybe we haven't met in person, but we've had maybe Skype conversations. So we have like our little appointment times where we catch up or we just have a phone conversation just to check in with each other. So we, you know, it's really, like you said, it really helped open up the gateway to like not feeling so isolated and like, like a fish out of water and totally feeling misunderstood and, you know, like alone in it and having that opportunity with the amazingness that technology offers us to have these different ways to communicate and to reach out. And I formed friendships with people who live really far from me, but you know, one day we'll maybe get to meet. Um, that would be nice. But in the meantime, we can schedule little Skype sessions and just talk and, you know, just, just connect on that level. And I think that's a really important part of, the SIBO journey or any journey for someone dealing with the chronic illness is having some people who you really feel get it, who, where you can talk, vent, you know, share your ups and your downs and, and also be a, a, a good listener for them as well, because we don't, oftentimes that part of it is really hard to come by. And so the group can offer that in, in many ways. It can, and it can be very comforting to know that whilst you may not feel that you have support from friends and family in your immediate world, that you can log on um, to the group and and you'll be able to get the support there because somebody in the group has gone through what you're going through. Um, it's I don't think I've ever seen anybody um, put a post up and ask for help and that no one has either a shared experience or similar experience or at least some support or guidance that they can provide, which can be really, really good when you're feeling pretty low. Um, I think one of the things, and I think it's fair to say this, because it is a platform where often people go to uh, vent and express their frustration in their day-to-day world that when you're, when you first come into it, you can, you might feel that gosh you know all these people are really sick where are the positive stories mm-hmm. um what's your what's your uh, kind of take on uh, the fact that we we are you know there's a lot of people out there talking about what isn't going well for them that day and perhaps not so many stories of mm-hmm. all the highs that happen and there's plenty of success stories out of that group as well yeah that's a really good point um initially people who maybe are first diagnosed or suspect they have SIBO will join the group and it can really be overwhelming um because the group is so large. People post questions all the time. A lot of them are the same questions too. um, But that's, you know, that's fine. And everyone is always willing to answer and give support. But you're right. A lot of it is venting. I'm frustrated. I'm so mad at my boyfriend or whatever it is. And yeah, that can really take a toll too. So you really have to check in with yourself and find a balance. Um, It can easily become all-consuming. Dealing with the SIBO diagnosis or any diagnosis where it's really not very well known about, um, even among the medical, you know, professionals, that kind of brings up its own, you know, different challenges that you have to deal with. And so I lost my train of thought. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, I think the the what I've seen with the group is that um, that you do need to use the group in an appropriate way for mm-hmm. you at that at that point in your t- in your journey. And um, if I if I think about myself in the early days of my SIBO diagnosis, I think it's fair to say I became obsessed about mm-hmm. finding out everything I could about SIBO because I was so excited to have a diagnosis finally after so many years of looking for answers. But that obsession, I think, at times became a little unhealthy because I spent a lot of time in that Facebook group Mm -hmm. and I really took on board the emotional impact of other people saying how sick they felt. And, And so I had to learn to moderate my time in the group. And as I got well, I use I now use my time to offer positive suggestions and support to people when I know that they have when you can see through their posts that they're having a tough time. But I actively choose to stay within the group to share the positive stories that happen from yes. SIBO. And I'm glad you so say that. that. Oh, I'm only so sorry. Saying negative things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like when I had lost my train of thought and then now it's come back. Yeah. Okay. So yes, a lot of the times the comments do tend to be, I'm overwhelmed, I'm stressed, you know, I don't feel people understand me, or, you know, my relationship is suffering, or I just don't feel well, whatever it is. Yeah, that can really uh, take a toll on someone. So you really have to check in with yourself and make sure that you're not like you say, taking on other people's um, emotions and experiences. Um, And that can be really tricky when you're already in an emotionally maybe vulnerable place because you're just in just in the beginning stages of starting to learn about what SIBO is for you and and all that comes with it and the social impacts it will have it can have on your life um, and the impacts it might have at work or um, with family um, and just you know any changes that you have you might have to take on to manage the condition and to work towards getting better so that can be really hard but I also think it's fair to say that that's just part of the human condition uh, in general we have a tendency to uh, perhaps put more attention on the negative and what's not working um, and and that's just kind of the way our brains tend to to work um, unless you're one of those people who's really um, into mindfulness practices and practices a lot of meditation if that's how you are as a person then that will make positive changes in actually how your brain functions and and less less attention um, would be on the negative and more on the positive so I just think in general it's just in our nature to kind of put more attention on the negative but also like you say with that said we have to just kind of take it take in the information as we feel ready and if it's too much then we need to step back um, and when we feel like we're getting the support we need um, in other ways or we're just learning in small increments little by little at a pace that's like less overwhelming that's okay too. Cause I know a lot of times people who join the group are like, I'm glad I joined the group. It's great. There's so much information, but I'm an information overload. And my, my news feed on my Facebook account is like dominated by SIBO, um, comments all the time. It's like too much. And, um, and so that's where they just have to kind of push pause, check in with themselves and see, see where they can find some balance. And maybe they just go in there once a week, or maybe they just go in and access the files section of the group and just kind of skim it over because there are SIBO success stories in there. And there are people who stay in 
who um, have um, recovered from SIBO or who have gotten to a better place where they're, they have been able to maintain their symptoms and get, get their life back close to maybe not absolutely back to where it was, but their quality of life has improved where they feel like they can really be a part of the world and function and, and work and live and, and just feel, you know, in a much, be in a much better place uh, emotionally, physically, um, and health wise. So some people do leave the group once they get better, which that also makes sense. You know, once you have gotten better then maybe for that person, it just is mentally just in their best interest to kind of put this chapter in the past and move on. But before they leave, I always encourage them, please, before you leave, can you type up, you know, a little bit about your journey, you know, what helped you, um, you know, what you learned, what were your takeaways, just so that people can have the opportunity to check and look into that for themselves and, and just learn from your own experiences, what worked for them and see what might benefit their own situation. Yeah, and you talked about the um, file section of that group and, and I think it is often, uh, it's an underutilized uh, resource. There's, there's a lot of really valuable information in there and, and people often don't see it. So can you talk a bit about what is in the file section and, and even how people find it if they're listening to this podcast and thinking, I never knew there was a file section <laughs> to the Facebook group. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. A lot of people don't know. And I know like in if you access the Facebook group on your desktop or laptop computer, then you will see uh, you'll see at the top of the group, you open up to the group page and then you'll see uh, like a, a section like tabs at the top they'll it'll say discussion and that's the SIBO forum where everyone types in their questions and responds to comments and such and then there's other sections as well members you can um, see who's in the group I believe and then as you go along the last tab on the far right is actually the files tab so that's where you would access it now if you're accessing it on your cell phone um, it's a little bit different, but you can still get it. I think you just go under more, like you go to the group and uh, and then you go to a more button and then it, it has files listed in there, I think. You, you know, don't quote me on that one, but it's easier to access on a desktop or a laptop. And in the file section, um, there's actual um, information from uh, some of the leaders in the SIBO research um, and treatment protocols um, such as Dr. Seebecker, uh, Dr. Um, Sandberg-Lewis, Dr. Weinstock. Um, I'm sure there's stuff there from Dr. Pimentel. Um, and that's also to say that we have a lot of big, big name um, medical health professionals. Some of them are the are in the the top, you know, leading researchers or um, you know doctors in this field of, of SIBO research and treatment that are a part of the group. They're not necessarily active, but it's really nice to see that as an admin. Um, we get so many people who, who join, I would say like at least 200 a day, generally speaking, I would say is how many um, join each day. Um, and sometimes I catch some of the names um, because there's three admins, there's Katie, myself, and Kenny. Um, and sometimes I see these big name doctors and I'm like, oh, that's, I get so excited. Um, and, and that just is really nice to see that there's so many medical health professionals who are in the group who are just there to kind of learn from the patient. Um, and they'll, they'll chime in a little bit here and there. And we have to just, you know, 
remind them that it's, this is not a place to um, pre prescribe or to give medical advice. Um, that's something that we have to monitor really well, uh, just among the members in general. Um, but it's nice to see that there is this community of not just the patients in the group, it's also a lot of medical health professionals who are really realizing that this condition is, is really prevalent and just going undiagnosed a lot. Um, so that really is nice to see. Yeah, and I think it's great to have uh, to see medical pr uh, practitioners in there because they can learn so much from just listening to what uh, people with SIBO are talking about. And so I'm sure it can be highly beneficial to them when thinking about, well, how do they support the treatment of a patient? Um, the lifestyle component of living with SIBO is so important and, um, and, and dealing with a condition like SIBO is so multifaceted. It's not just just about popping a few pills and you know drinking potions to get rid of it it's it's really all encompassing and um and I and I do I feel confident that any practitioner in the group will be able to see the other challenges that their patients experience regularly um based on what people are writing about I agree and I think yes you're absolutely right it is a multifaceted um approach and that's the one thing I really um, as a as a licensed mental health therapist, you know, I notice how much it can have an emotional toll on people. Um, like we've said before, feeling isolated, misunderstood, judged, um, you know, maybe not being taken seriously by their friends and family who think, oh, they're just being dramatic or maybe they're just wanting attention or something. I don't know what their problem is, but they got to figure it out or something. Maybe they just don't understand. Um, and that's kind of how the people in their lives are kind of responding or they just don't know what to say. And so, and the same goes for the patient in, you know, dealing with doctors or other health practitioners. Um, because before I got diagnosed, it was, I was kind of being told, um, are you sure, are you sure you're not stressed? Have you looked at, you know, your stress levels? Because, you know, it sounds like you need to do, you need to work on that, you know? So it was basically, so, uh, the message was, um, it sounds like you're kind of just needing to handle your emotional state, uh, lady, and um, maybe you're imagining things. And that was really an interesting experience. Um, before I got sick, it was more about, oh, you know, you go to the doctor, whatever I had in the past. I've had, you know, I've had a, a couple surgeries before having... Um, the diagnosis of SIBO and, and really starting to feel the symptoms of SIBO. Um, but in the past, you're going to the doctor, you go, that was my thing. You go, you listen to what they say and you follow their advice. And that's kind of how I was approaching it when I finally got diagnosed. It took a long time to get diagnosed. Um, and then I realized that really wasn't working because I was listening to them and I wasn't really getting anywhere. <laughs> which was really frustrating. So, so I had to switch gears a little bit, um, and acknowledge with myself. Um, I am, I know my body best. I know what's going on with my health better than anyone right now, because I inhabit my body. I know what it's doing. I know how it responds to certain foods and how my body hurts and the fatigue and the lack of mental clarity is coming and going. And, it's worse some days and less problematic others. And that's not something they're going to really understand. And that's something I think doctors are 
are really slowly getting more and more exposure to. My hope is that as the SIBO uh, conferences continue, that that part of, of the um, condition gets more attention because I don't really see it happening uh, as of yet. Um, and, and that social, emotional uh, part of having this condition or having a chronic illness, I think, um, doesn't get enough attention. And if it doesn't get addressed, it can really um, make the healing and recovery part a lot harder on the person and also on their family. Um, so it has this domino effect. Mm, it does. It's it's really interesting. It seems to be such a common uh, story whereby the, I think the general rule is that, uh, and not everybody is like this because the other admin, uh, Katie Coldwell, she was diagnosed with SIBO very quickly and I'm so lucky and grateful for her experience uh, that she did have that and she, where she talks to us on episode six of the Healthy Gut podcast. But for the rest of us, um, I think it's very common that it takes us many, many years and quite often and I share exactly the same story as you whereby I went to doctors and they said, it's all in your head, the blood tests come back fine, there's nothing wrong with you. And I know when I interviewed Angela Pfeiffer on episode eight, we talked about being your own private investigator and really taking ownership of what's going on in your body because we are the only people that know our body well. And and just recently, I had an interesting discussion with somebody in the Facebook group who was really angry that doctors, um, you know, she felt that she should go to a doctor and they should know immediately what was wrong with her. Mm-hmm. And I was saying, well, we're the only ones that know what's wrong with us. Truly, we are the only ones that really know what's going on with us because we live in our bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that it you know, it's a very interesting point at where you are in your journey as to whether you feel that you you can um, own what's going on with you or whether you really want somebody else to own what's going on with you. I personally believe, and it's just my opinion, that in order to get true health, I need to take full ownership of my health um, because no one else knows me like I know me. Absolutely. I mean, I think just like you said, this is, I was telling someone the other day, I said, um, having SIBO like, like you had mentioned earlier, you said, Oh, finally I got a diagnosis. Well, that was, that was my, my feeling too, initially, because it took so long of hearing from doctors. Oh, well, you know, just try this or that, or, Oh, you're just, you just need to meditate or go to yoga or try some probiotics. And, um, and just actually realizing that having this condition is, I call it an emotional roller coaster. <laughs> because you have ups and downs. So it took me, which it really isn't that bad. It took me about three years to finally get a SIBO diagnosis. I know for other people, it's it's actually quite a bit longer. But I also know I'm 34. I also know that ever since I was in middle school, I was having um, gastrointestinal complaints. Um, and they weren't life impacting. They weren't affecting my ability to go to school. But it gradually just became more and more prevalent um, as I got older. And by the time I was 25, it it was really starting to interfere. Um, And so it's just an emotional roller coaster. And having 
initially been diagnosed with IBS, I was like, okay, well, that's cool. All right, I got a diagnosis. And then I looked into that more and I said, well, that IBS doesn't give me anything. Like that's a diagnosis of exclusion. That's just saying, well, we've done these tests. You don't have Crohn's or colitis or this or that. And so we really don't know what's wrong with you. But since you're saying you have these symptoms and they're gut related, we're going to give you this diagnosis and send you on your way. And I was like, um, hmm, okay, I guess I'll go along with what you're saying. I mean, they never told me it's a diagnosis of exclusion. That was something I had to figure out on my own. But I learned because I kept doing what they said, you know, do a food journal, try some probiotics, do all of these things. And nothing was working. I said, this is more than IBS. I know I'm not crazy. <laughs> And at the time, I was in graduate school to become a therapist, you know, so like, I'm like, listen, I know mental health, I understand that, you know, people can, can uh, manifest, you know, that is possible, there are uh, conditions where people are under severe distress, and they can uh, add to the symptoms or actually create them. And so I told him, I said, I understand this, I said, but this, this is not that, like, there is more going on. And so finally, three years later, I get a diagnosis, but only because I was, I was like you had mentioned, I was my own detective. I had to be my own advocate. And I stumbled upon Dr. Pimentel's book, A New IBS Solution. And that, and that was the golden ticket for me because without that book, I would not have had the knowledge, enough of a basic knowledge of what to know to ask for. And that was the problem I was running into. I was in, at the time, I was in an information drought. I didn't know where to go or how to even research. I find this book and I'm like, okay, finally, I'm feeling like I have some guidance, like there's a path. And so I came armed and I said, okay, well, this is good. This doctor is the head of gastroenterology at Cedar sinai in Los Angeles. I live just outside of the city of LA. I said, all the GI doctors here know who he is. So this book should carry some clout. And it did. I brought the book. My GI doctor said, oh yeah, I, I know Dr. Pimentel. I said, okay, well, this is what he is saying. So it was this fine dance of like, hey, I want you to take me seriously because I know there's more going on than IBS, even though you disagree right now, doctor. But this is what he is saying. This is what Dr. Pimentel is saying. And this is what I'm this is because of that information, which I am presenting to you. This is what I would like to do. Will you work with me? So it was kind of like it got to a point where I had to be like an attorney getting ready to go to court to have my evidence, <laughs> as horrible as that sounds. But that's kind of how I had to go about it because I knew that if I didn't have anything, if I didn't have questions or if I didn't have anything concrete or scientific or whatever, it would just be all for nothing. Like I would go and nothing would get accomplished. No steps would take place. And so that's what we did. He's like, okay. He's like, you want the breath test? He said, um, let's do these things first. So we had to negotiate and I said, okay, fine. As long as we can get to the test and then we get to the test and then it comes out positive and I am so over the moon. I'm like, yes, I feel validated. And in that moment I realized, okay, this is a sign, like this is my big takeaway. I have to really trust my instincts here. And this is where I was intuitively feeling I needed to go. This is the direction I needed. And this was the test I needed. And guess what? I was right. They didn't think I had it, 
but he was willing to go along with me, which I'm very appreciative of because finally I got the breath test. Um, and then I was excited, validated. Yay. Okay. I've got the diagnosis. And then, so that was like the high, the emotional high. And then, and then I'm like, okay, now what? <laughs> and that opens up this whole other can of worms of like, okay, so this is what I have. And now I'm researching it. And, um, and, and now I'm getting a little overwhelmed because it's not so easy and there's no magic pill and there's no magic formula to get better. You just kind of have to plot along, figure it out, you know, what might help you and what, you know, what approaches to try. So that was then the, oh my gosh, <laughs> process. Yeah. And it's, I think that is, um, it's just such a common process for people where you get that initial relief and then you get the, oh, now what? Oh, my God. <laughs> what am I going to do? Um, I know that my listeners will want to know, because those of us with SIBO seem to be quite fixated on whether you're hydrogen dominant or methane mm -hmm. dominant. Um, are you comfortable sharing which whether you were hydrogen or methane dominant SIBO? Oh, yeah, that's fine. Um, I am methane dominant. So that typically generally speaking, is the harder one to treat. Um, but what I found that helped me was a combination of prescription medication and herbals. Um, I did prescription three times. I did three rounds of that over... I, I've also been... Let me see. I'd say I've been in treatment for SIBO for about four years, but not... But I don't want to scare people. I, there, were, there were also other conditions I was working on as well, so I wasn't consistently treating. I would do a round of treatment and then take a break, um, give my body a rest, um, you know, work on other aspects like, you know, adrenal health. I needed to work on my adrenal support. That was a big part of my healing process. Um, but I also, it also took that long because I used a variety of doctors. I did I went through three GI doctors. Uh, all of them had amazing strengths, and I learned a lot from each of them. But at some point, we plateaued, or they just weren't willing to keep investigating because I said, okay, I know I have IBS, and I know I have SIBO, but I have some other stuff going on that doesn't fall into these categories, and I need more, I need more support here. I need someone who's willing to go along with me on this. And I did come across an amazing GI doctor, which I have now. And because of him, I'm now working with specialists and getting other treatment for other things that are going on. So I'm very grateful, but it's a process. And I had to kind of look outside of my, um, my insurance and go outside of, of that and look at alternative practitioners. Um, I, I, I'm a patient of Dr. Seebecker's and I'm so grateful to be one of her patients because she doesn't take on patients at this point. Um, but she, she was a big part of my, my healing process. So I've worked with naturopathic doctors. I've worked with chiropractors who practice functional uh, medicine and that has been pivotal. Um, just working with certain practitioners got me to a place where I wasn't lying in bed all day because I was exhausted, um, where I wasn't in such excruciating body pain um, that I got used to it, that I didn't realize I was in pain and I was tired. Um, 
So for me, it was a combination of prescription and herbals and also doing a lot of testing um, to kind of gauge where my numbers were going. Because at a certain point, I had I had a, a bad systemic infection going on, which one of my functional medicine practitioners diagnosed. And he said, no wonder you feel lousy. He said, your white blood cell count is, is just insanely high. He's like, you poor thing. We didn't know what the infection was, um, but but we worked on it and we did herbal treatments and and I really credit him. That was before I um, before I attended the symposium, so that was early on um, in my journey. But it's a process. It's a process where you learn a lot about all the different approaches that you can take on. And in my case, the way I got to a better quality of life where I wasn't feeling um, so fatigued and feeling so much pain was was trying out these different practitioners. No, not all of them worked out, but a lot of them did. And I am forever grateful because they each had their strengths. And um, I would say a key part of my, the reason I'm doing better today is because I got help in my adrenal support because that was, that was pretty low. I was stage three. I was in stage three adrenal fatigue. Um, and working with a specialist who, who strictly does that kind of work. That was the key uh, for me because the way he explained it was that in order to really give your body a chance to get the best benefit out of doing these herbal treatments and prescription treatments and all these other approaches, you have to really hone in and give your adrenals that foundational boost because that's the energy resource your body will will be pulling from when you're taking these um, pills that are going to make you feel tired, where you're going to have unpleasant detox symptoms, where you're going to feel moody and tired or, you know, all of those things. And so that's the, that's the resource that your body's going to tap into. And if it's already on empty, then the ability to really get the most out of a particular treatment uh, won't necessarily be there. Um, now that's his opinion. I am not a medical professional, but um, in this case, um, that helped me. That that did. I did see an improvement. And what does adrenal fatigue feel like for those the people that are listening who perhaps have never heard of it or, or wonder whether they themselves might um, have some issues with their adrenals? Um, well, essentially, it's just just not having a lot of energy, um, feeling tired, um, feeling moody. People, if anyone is having like thyroid, um, if they have thyroid conditions um, or are borderline thyroid, um, the thyroid and the adrenals are are intimately connected. And so if, if they're just feeling a lot of fatigue or moodiness, um, another key sign of someone's having adrenal fatigue is um, not getting quality sleep, but that's really hard to gauge. And I didn't realize it, um, that my sleep was not good because again, just like being in pain, you, you lose touch with having a perspective about what it feels like to not be in pain. Cause you're so used to it after a while that you kind of just, it becomes your new normal. And the same goes for not getting quality sleep. Um, at least for me, I can't speak for others, but, and so I, I, those are textbook signs. And so I've heard other people, I know now there's all these gadgets out there that can kind of um, measure your sleep quality or when you've, 
you come in and out of the different um, sleep states. Um, I never went that route. I, I didn't even know that. I don't think that stuff was even around when I was going through this, but just getting that support with supplementation, um, that was that was what was needed to kind of build up cortisol levels um, without getting too technical when we're when we're really stressed out. Um, when we're in this place of having a chronic illness, um, it can really stress our bodies on a biological level, um, also mentally and emotionally, and that can overwork the adrenal glands to a point where um, they just get tired. They get they they sputter out, and so um, that's when the adrenal fatigue can kick in because the adrenal glands are not operating like they normally should. And so the cortisol levels go down, um, hormone levels are impacted, thyroid, um, the thyroid hormone is affected because it needs cortisol to, to be supported, um, to function within, within its normal range, whatever that is for the person. But all of this that I'm saying is, is outside of my scope of um, being a therapist. This is just stuff I've learned as um, a patient. Um, and, and also this, this is also really tied to the functional medicine world. That's where this information is coming from. It's not something um, when, I, when I shared, when, when I got testing done for my, um, my hormone levels and my adrenal levels, the traditional medicine, at least here in the States, my primary care doctor and the others were just like, oh, well, you just need to take this pill or something. But that was like a Band-Aid. It wasn't really getting to actually the root issue. Um, and so I didn't go along with that because I didn't feel that was what was best for me. And I said, you know what, I think I'm just going to do my own thing. I'm seeing this doctor outside of my insurance I told them that, and then a year later, we retested, and my numbers got better, and they were like, oh, wow, it's working. That's great. I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> it's, a, it's an expensive way to go about it, but this is, this is better for me um, because this is actually getting to the core issue instead of putting a Band-Aid on something that's still going to be there. Um, so... A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Yeah, and, and if anyone listening wants to learn more about adrenal fatigue and the connection with thyroid and SIBO, um, I've got a great episode with Dr. Michael Ruscio in on episode 12 so you can head back to episode 12 and, and learn more about it there um, I think it's something very very interesting that you're talking about and we don't experience this to this level in Australia is around the having to choose to go outside of your insurance cover and what I find interesting is here in Australia we have private insurance and we also have a um, public health care system but we're very used to paying for things. We have to pay for our prescription medication and we have to pay for treatment. And even when we go to see the doctor, generally, we still have to pay something. Mm -hmm. 
even if it's covered by our, our um, medical system, we get a, a discount, but uh, we still have to pay. So the concept for us Australians to go and seek additional support, perhaps with a natural therapist, a functional uh, medical doctor or, or a naturopath, um, is not foreign to us because we're we're used to paying. Whereas what I what I get the sense from from my um, US based. Uh, seaboers uh, is that it can often be a major barrier for people because they want to um, you know get it all done in, under insurance and and I do wonder if that perhaps holds people back in terms of getting the right people the right healthcare team for themselves yes I think that happens a lot um, and also people I mean people who have insurance um, just because they have insurance doesn't mean they don't pay anything. They still have to pay so much a month for their insurance. They could have a high deductible. So, like, especially right now, the deductibles can be five, six thousand dollars before you know insurance will kick in um, for certain you know conditions or under certain categories. So even with insurance, it's expensive. Um, having to pay to go, having to copay, you know, maybe thirty or fifty dollars to go see your doctor or to get your prescription. Just because we have insurance here, everyone's insurance is different too. It's not universal. It's not all the same. It's all different depending on your employer or if you have your own personal insurance that you um, have as a standalone. So it's expensive as it is um, having insurance. So then the idea of having to find a doctor outside of your insurance because the doctors who are paneled with your insurance just aren't cutting it for you is definitely a barrier um, because this this condition is very expensive. It can get really expensive quickly. Um, it can get overwhelming um, emotionally, but it can also get overwhelming financially because of the medications. People like, for example, here in the states. Um, I'm very lucky with my insurance because they paid for my medication. But a lot of people have to, um, even with their insurance, it gets denied. And that medication easily goes for $900 or $1,000 or more just for a week's worth of pills when Dr. Pimentel's um, a recommendation is to take it for two weeks. Um, and so it, it really it can be a barrier to a lot of people. Mm, it, yeah, definitely. And, and quite, um, like you say, quite overwhelming. And, and there's the financial cost of the treatment itself, but then there's also the additional costs around often changing the way you eat. And um, quite often people will need to do quite considerable overhauls to their diet, particularly if they've eaten a very classic Western diet, which, you know, here in Australia and, and in the States, uh, we eat very similarly in the sense that we have a pretty high grain and carbohydrate-based diet. Um, and when we move to looking after our bodies with SIBO, quite often we'll need to move more to a protein and vegetable diet, and that can um, be more expensive uh, and, and very much perceived to be a much more expensive way of eating as well. How, how have you coped um, yourself, Daniela, around the financial and the emotional cost, if you like, of, uh, of SIBO? Yeah, I would say the financial has been a tough, a tough one. Um, it, it has been very expensive for me. Um, again, I, I got 
the best of the best um, support with certain practitioners. But that was also incredibly expensive because there was no chance my insurance was going to even pay for a penny. Um, and then to add to that, all the tests that um, needed to be done. And not just it's not just a test you have done once and then that's it. You go back. Just like the breath test. There's the adrenal test I did a few different times. Like my doctor wanted me to do it every three months. And I said, listen, this is, I mean, I only have so much money. So I'm going to have to space it out a little bit here. I had to stagger um, for my own sanity, mental sanity, and for the financial end of things, I had to stagger out uh, my appointments with doctors. And I never, I, I just saw maybe one or two uh, practitioners at a time if it was outside of insurance, because it, it, it it's very expensive. Um, so that's the financial end, plus the supplements, you know, not, not, not to mention the supplements, um, just to try and have better digestion and, um, you know, manage the, um, the breath test numbers and to keep the methane low, um, you know, taking, I, I would take different supplements for different things and timing out when I would take them. Okay, I'm going to take this pill first. I'm going to wait a half hour and then I'm going to take these pills, which were the herbal, like the herbal antibiotics, before I eat a meal. <laughs> so um, it, it was, so as far as the, the social impact, uh, needless to say, I stopped eating out. <laughs> it was just a lot easier to eat at home and um, just do that, go, go through life like that for a little while. And that was really hard for me because, um, I come from an Italian and a Latino background. And so food, the kind of food I, you know, grew up eating and the sense of community around food, which ties to so many different cultures, that's just our way of connecting. All of that kind of went down. It, uh, just became less, um, because it was just easier to not engage in that way because it just would open up so many questions. Oh, why aren't you eating that pasta? Or you don't want to have the tamales or, you know, whatever it was. And just having to have that conversation, that in and of itself can be exhausting. Um, because then after a while you start to feel like a broken record. Um, maybe it's different family members that just aren't aware of what's going on. So you just kind of, I just found myself not doing that as much, um, the, the eating with others, like in a social setting or at a restaurant, because then it was, it would just open all these questions up that I, nece I wasn't necessarily in the mood to go into, um, because you kind of just want to escape a little bit once in a while and just like enjoy the moment instead of having to like bring it up again. <laughs> um, so that was hard. And, and also I think a big part of this was the fact that having having it been a long progression of symptoms getting worse before finally getting diagnosed, that takes a toll because already your sense of self is being kind of challenged. Um, the person you were when you were totally healthy or feeling like really like, hey, I'm good, you know, like that slowly kind of gets chipped away. It can. It happened to me. I mean, I know it doesn't happen to everybody. Um, I think if, had I been really lucky in getting a doctor who was like, oh, it sounds like you've got SIBO. We got to do a breath test. Man, if that had happened within the first year or so, I don't think it would have 
impacted me so much um, as as it has. Um, that's not to say that you know life is still that way. Life has gotten better, and I'm in a healthier place. I can tolerate more foods. I can go out and and um, engage with that food social aspect more easily now. Um, but for a while, that was a challenge. And instead of going to meet friends for lunch, it was like, let's just go grab some tea. Like, I don't even drink coffee. So, you know, or let's go for a walk. Um, but I can't go for a really long walk because, you know, anything more than 30 minutes, that's like too much for my body right now. Um, so I can't do more than that. But we can sit and talk. And, you know, so it had its it, its impact on the things I wanted to do, you know? Mm, and I, You know, I think it'd be, I don't know if anyone has studied this, but, you know, it would be very interesting to know the length of time it takes to get a SIBO diagnosis and the psychological impact that that has. Um, and I, I feel very much like you as well around um, because for so many years, no one believed me at, at a medical level. My mum believed me. She could see. She I remember her, like, patting my very distended belly and saying oh darling oh gosh you know I didn't realize it got this bad and being quite upset because she could visibly see how much pain I was in um but I you know I really suffered with you know anxiety and some depression and just just you know not feeling uh perhaps that I was worthy because people were starting to really question my sanity and it wasn't my sanity that was in question it was the fact that my guts were just in a really bad state um and I, I think also you're you raising just how you have to alter your the way you eat and the way you socialize and it doesn't mean it's forever but it means it's for a, a period of time to support um yourself to return to health or to support your journey to health and i think that there can i think it um i think it's important to tell our listeners that it's also okay to mourn that i know i mourned my old life i really missed going out and and drinking and eating foods and it had a very big impact on my relationship my partner was very frustrated that we couldn't just go to a restaurant because we love food we, we're big foodies and and it, so it had an impact on him as well and um and so you know it this little condition these these little bacteria can be quite wide-ranging what's your advice to anyone who's listening who's going yes that's me and oh gosh how do I how do I cope with the social situations how do I cope with the anxiety I feel around this condition um what have been some of your key takeaways or or pieces of advice that you can offer I think what really helps um what helped me um and I think what helps a lot of people too is knowing that it's okay to feel what you feel like don't do your best. It's hard. It's hard to actually follow this advice, but, um, do your best to not beat yourself up over feeling down. Um, if you're feeling down, that's okay. You're allowed. Um, you know, this is a big, this is a big shift for a lot of people in how they live life and how they interact with others and how they see themselves. Uh, this was not a path I had planned, that's for sure. Um, and I'm sure that goes for everybody. No, no one expects to go through all of these hurdles. And so to have this expectation that we should be more resilient or we should just, you know, um, 
buck up and figure it out and it'll, you know, we'll figure it out and life will go on. That's not really being authentic. We have to really honor how we feel, acknowledge how we feel, and find those key people who get it. Um, maybe they have SIBO, maybe they don't. Um, some of my nearest and dearest friends have SIBO and some do not. Um, but the common thread is that we understand each other. And to have, if you can find that person or group of core people who are there for you, who say, listen, I'm sorry to hear that you're not feeling well, but don't worry. I know, I know we had plans to go see that movie, but it's okay. You know what? Let's just hang out at your house. Um, we'll, we'll watch something on Netflix, whatever. Like having someone who, who understands, like, I'm really not trying to be a flake, you know, like, I just don't feel well, or all of a sudden I have these terrible symptoms of nausea and I just, or I feel really lightheaded and I don't think it's safe for me to get in the car and drive over to see you. You know, if you can find people who really understand that and know that you're not trying to see, you're not wanting their sympathy because getting that kind of feedback when you're dealing with something, when you're already not feeling well can often make you feel even worse because you're just feeling more like pathetic, like, oh God, I'm getting pity from this person. And that's really not what I want, you know? So for people who are listening, who are friends with folks who have SIBO, just, just listen, you know, just go, Hey, I'm sorry. You're having a hard day. I'm here for you. Let me know if you need anything. And I think just getting that kind of feedback can be so powerful and healing and comforting. Um, so just acknowledge where you're at. And the other part too, Mm. yeah, acknowledge where you're at and, um, and it's okay, you know, and, and how can we expect ourselves to feel good and happy when we're in pain? Like that just doesn't make sense. If you're in a lot of pain physically, emotionally, it just, it's just not the way, it's not how our body operates. And, and that's like just how our brain and our gut is connected. And that's connected by this highway, uh, called the vagus nerve, um, and, and that sends signals. So if someone is sick with an upset stomach or they have the stomach flu, I don't imagine they're going to be in a good mood. Uh, that That's not the case. And so I kind of explain it to people like that sometimes. It's like having the stomach flu or having a longstanding flu or virus that just is not going away. And some days you're feeling better and other days you're not. But if you have that imbalance in your stomach, you've got, you know, you're just feeling unwell or you ate something that upset your stomach, that sends signals through that vagus nerve and communicates to your brain that says, hey, something's haywire with your stomach, so I'm going to match that. So if the stomach is in distress, it's going to send that message to the brain and say, oh, and and that's going to make the brain feel more stressed, anxious, irritable. Um, And so it's only natural for us to have these different moods and experiences. Um, and also if we're dealing with SIBO, um, or any other health condition, um, there's a possibility that we're also dealing with inflammation. I know that was my case because I had a high white blood cell count. And so my doctor said, wow, your inflammation, no wonder you're in a lot of pain. You have really bad, you've got a lot of high inflammation markers, um, that came up in another test. He said, that makes sense because your white blood cell count is high. So if you've got a lot of inflammation in your body, that can often connect and tie into um, feeling pain in your body. And when we're in pain, 
we're not going to be in a good mood either. I mean, so a lot of this, we just have to cut ourselves some slack. Like A causes B to happen sometimes, or B causes A to happen sometimes. So if, if we're anxious in our minds, or we're really stressed out, that can cause us to have a nervous stomach too, you know, like anticipating something that can, you know, worsen our symptoms. Um, so I don't know if that's overwhelming for people, but <laughs> I don't know. I just, I try to normalize yeah. it a little bit because there are things also beyond us that's beyond our conscious thinking that are happening on a biological level that kind of can take over too. Mm, yeah, definitely. I think that the pain piece is really interesting and important to talk about because um, this condition is painful as a general rule. Um, most people, not all, but most people have some discomfort or pain from it. And I think back to myself and I used to almost look out for the pain. Uh, I was very used to pain because I was in pain all the time and my pain threshold, interestingly, in my abdominal area is very high because I've had so much of it. In other areas, you know, I get a tiny splinter in my finger and the world is ending. But if I get really intense stomach cramps, in fact, my appendix was rupturing mm -hmm. and I was refusing to go to hospital because I thought it was just another bout of stomach cramps and I was gasping for breath because I was in so much pain and it was only a friend who said, if you don't call an ambulance, I will. Uh, that um, I said, okay, I won't call an ambulance. I'll just call a doctor. <laughs> and they said, go straight to hospital and my appendix ruptured. Um, and I was very, very unwell. Um, but uh, but the point I'm trying to make is I think, um, what's your view around the the real pain versus perceived pain mm -hmm. when we're waiting for pain or we, mm -hmm. we're expecting pain? Do we then therefore create the pain because it's so present in our everyday lives? I think, yeah, Um we can have, we can definitely become hypervigilant, like hypersensitive, um, not like emotional sensitive, but just hyper aware of our bodies because of the unpleasantness that SIBO brings. So if we eat something and then we have this like horrible reaction to it, that can kind of scar us a little bit and make us kind of feel or become a little more hypervigilant. So then it can kind of be this anticipatory fear of like, Oh, I don't know if I want to eat at that restaurant because last time I was there, I got so sick or I felt fine then, but then I got home and I was just curled up in a ball because I was in so much pain. So we really have to, as hard as it is, we really have to try to work on managing our stress and working on the, the dialogue we have within ourselves. Because if we continue to go into that, um, oh, I don't want to do this because it's this is what's going to happen, or I just know I'm going to feel this way. Well, actually, if you were to kind of think, of, well, from a, a psychology standpoint, um, the words we say, you know, do have a resonance within our body. So if we're putting that out there uh, verbally outside or just within ourselves, we're actually working towards making that come true. It's kind of called the self-fulfilling prophecy. So if you keep saying something enough, it can actually happen. Um, so we have to be really careful in how we phrase things, how we work on thinking about things. Okay, fine. Acknowledge that the last time you were at that restaurant, you had a horrible reaction. Okay, I, I know I'm going to feel a little uncomfortable going to this event or going back to that restaurant. 
However, I'm going to be really mindful, and instead of letting them season the vegetables, I'm just going to ask it to be prepared this way, and I'm going to bring my own seasoning or something. You know, so there's there's a shift in that dialogue because the more we're able to have that shift in our dialogue of, of allowing there to be an opening for resolution, even in the smallest increments, that plays a part in in how we perceive pain. So if we are really emotionally upset about something and we're feeling pain, the likelihood of us saying that pain is very intense is a lot higher than what that pain would be if we were in an emotionally neutral place. Um, I'm referencing an actual study between a group, two groups of people. One group had fibromyalgia, a diagnosis of that, and the other group did not. And they were both given an electrical stimulus of pain. And in each person in each group had to do this twice. And the first time they said, the scientist said, I want you to think of an emotionally neutral event and I'm going to think of it now. Okay, you're going to get the stimulus of pain and I want you to rate it on a scale of 1 to 10. And then at a later time, they revisited that same patient and this time they said, I want you to think of an emotionally upsetting event. And they didn't, and the patients didn't know it at the time, but the scientists gave them the same level of intensity of pain. And those people consistently in both groups reported that pain to be a lot higher when they were emotionally upset. So it just goes to show that our emotional state and how we cope, what outlets we use to de-stress, to vent, um, can really play a part in how we feel within our bodies and how intensely we feel the pain. Uh, so that's really interesting because when, uh, you know, I know with SIBO it can be such a vicious cycle that you feel pain, you get anxious uh, and you can go into, an, into a very negative emotional state, you then feel more pain. It's, it's very much I can see how that could be very interlinked and, and looping um, mm-hmm. and making it works. Uh, have, have you got any techniques that you used with yourself um, or perhaps even in your work that can help people um, kind of move out of that state? You know, I think the biggest thing that can help people, um, it also depends where they're at though. I mean, if they're, if they're newly diagnosed, they're overwhelmed and stressed, then this is really, this might be a little bit too much to, to even consider right now. But if they find, if they feel that they're in a place where they're more able to, um, feel calm within themselves and have the ability to, um, more easily problem solve, their thinking isn't um, foggy or anything like that, then, you know, if they can just practice breathing techniques, I mean, that's a good place to start. It can, at first it can be overwhelming because people are just trying to survive and get through the day. And so to add on something else right at the initial onset of the journey for them might be, this might not be in their wheelhouse at the moment. But maybe once they've kind of gotten used to their new routine or the changes that they've had to implement, then adding this in would be a you know a good a good time for them to kind of consider this. But just deep breathing. I mean, that's where you kind of imagine your your belly is a balloon. So as you inhale, that balloon expands out, and as you exhale, it goes inward towards the spine. And I actually have a guided imagery um, audio 
Uh, it's free for people to download on my website. You sign up for my newsletter. I send an email out once a month. Um, and so in the email um, chain that goes out, a, a series of three, when you confirm your email, you also then get to download that audio that I put together. And it's this guided meditation where I help walk you through breathing in and out. I have the ocean in the background. I actually went to the beach and recorded the waves. <laughs> and, um, and just making some kind of a regular practice, if you can do it every day, um, that really can do wonders in calming down the, the nervous system, calming down the body. And when we're able to do that deep belly breathing, just bringing that oxygen in relaxes the muscles, calms the mind. It has this wonderful calming effect on the mind and clearing where you're able to think more critically. You um, feel less triggered um, by things that might be a nuisance. Maybe you find yourself not feeling as reactive. All of those things over time, if you make this a practice, I've heard it said that if, um, if you stick to some kind of a relaxation practice, a meditative uh, practice, guided imagery for like 21 days, something like that, if that's something you, can, you feel you can do, that can help lead to um, more impactful positive changes in how you feel within yourself and how you feel emotionally. And also, just by doing that deep breathing, you're calming down um, your nervous system. And when you do that and your muscles are more relaxed, you will also feel less pain. Because when we're in pain, our bodies are tense. Uh, there's this rigidity in our bodies. But if we're able to relax those muscles, just by getting that oxygen in and relaxing those muscles, that can really help um, get us to a place where we're not feeling as intense of pain. Um, so that's like, I think the first thing people can do. Um, and there's so many apps out there as well to, to try. It's just a matter of finding something that works for you and meditation or guided imagery. It doesn't have to be this daunting, intimidating thing. The recording I have is only, I think six or eight minutes long. That's it. It's not like this whole time consuming thing. Um, it can easily be done first thing in the morning or maybe right before you go to bed to kind of help you transition into sleep. So if you can find ways to just calm the body, um, maybe journaling is something, um, you know, writing how you feel um, or just having that connection with someone um, to, to have an outlet to vent. Um, there is the SIBO forum to do that, but also having that one-on-one -on -one interaction with someone. Maybe that's a therapist, a support group, um, in-person support group, or talking to a friend. Um, all of that helps. I also like to use tapping, which is also called emotional freedom technique. And what I like about that is it really does have this benefit in um, helping calm down um, our nervous system. If you tap... If you tap, it's like tapping on these meridian points in the body. So it's a combination of acupuncture and, um, uh, on the meridians, it's kind of a combination of those two approaches. But if you were to tap for roughly 30 minutes, you could actually reduce the levels of cortisol, uh, being produced in your body, which is that stress hormone that gets released when we're really stressed. So tapping not only 
helps to calm down the nervous system, but it also can have a positive impact on, on our, um, our body, our biology. Um, it can turn on and off um, genes, uh, gene mutations, um, how genes express themselves. I should phrase that differently. It can alter how genes are expressed. Um, this has been well-researched. Um, and so I really like that. And I use it a lot with my clients, um, mainly to help them work on calming themselves, feeling more grounded, um, and also in managing pain. Because a lot, of, uh, a lot of the experiences people go through when they're dealing with an illness or SIBO is a lot of that just kind of continues to reside in the body and it doesn't get processed. So the frustration and the anger that someone is feeling, like, why can't I get better? What's wrong with me? If they're not getting it out in some way, it's kind of just residing in the body and that can further feed into um, them not feeling well and further contribute to the physical pain or the emotional pain that they're feeling. So this kind of helps re in releasing that um, and working on these core beliefs that people we all have certain core beliefs about ourselves and kind of accessing that. Um, so, but tapping, you know, tapping people can do on their own in um, managing pain, but it's also something you want to be mindful of because it can bring up uh, core beliefs, deeper issues that then should be, you know, you should be in a process of being guided in that process with someone who has the training to kind of walk you through that. So I always kind of mention that too. Mm, wonderful. And if anybody wants to um, access the or get a link um, to be able to uh, sign up to your newsletter, I've put the link in the show notes. So you can uh, go to that and um, and connect with Daniela. Um, I, I'd love to know how is your health today? You've been on such a journey. Um, how do you feel today after everything that you've been through? Honestly, I'm feeling pretty good these days. Um, I'm so happy that I don't have the distended belly like I used to. Um, that's that's a big that's a big one. I mean, it'll happen from time to time, but um, my energy is so much better. Mental clarity is so much better. Um, I'm feeling you know more grounded. Like you know, I I don't ever anticipate that I'll live life like I did before before I got sick, but. I'm definitely on that path of really moving into this newer, evolved version of myself and um, being able to be in a, a much healthier place um, is, is so rewarding because it allows me to give back in different ways. So I now have more energy and more stamina to go out and have little talks in the community about chronic illness or pain or, or whatever, you know, is related to that or sleep. And I'm now better able to uh, work, at, you know, as a therapist and provide support to people. Um, whereas before that was, that was a lot harder to accomplish. Um, so things are looking good. That's awesome. It's so wonderful to hear. And and I think that those of us that are, that are um, feeling a lot better um, after 
experiencing chronic illness, life is different. It isn't the way it used to be, but that's okay. And I love my new life and I wouldn't go back to the way it was. I did. I wanted to, it to be the way it was um, when I first started my um, journey, but these days uh, I really love how life has turned out and I look forward to how it will be in the future and I couldn't do what I do today if it wasn't for the fact that I'd had to go through this journey myself. Um, so, Daniela, I'd love to thank you for coming on to the Healthy Gut podcast today. You've just shared such great wisdom and insight um, from the patient's perspective around what it is like to live with this condition. If people would like to connect with you, what's the best way for them to uh, make contact with you? That's a great question. Um, You know, they can go to my website and on there I have my email listed. I have my cell number. If you're in the United States, you can call me. I have, um, that's my, my business number and you know, we, we can connect that way. Um, and they can also find me in the um, the SIBO forum because I'm one of the admins. So you can always tag me um, in the group. Um, I tend to be the one who who puts the pinned post with the guidelines and the group rules and all that fun stuff. So I'm usually pretty easy to connect with in that way. Um, so, yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. It's been great talking to you and sharing and spreading awareness. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed episode 22 with Daniela Paloni. You can find the show notes and full transcription of today's episode at thehealthygut.co forward slash Daniela. And that's spelled D-A-N-I-E-L-A. I absolutely love hearing your feedback, so don't forget to leave us a rating and review in iTunes or the app you use to listen to this podcast. And if this has been helpful for you, it may be helpful for somebody else you know, so don't forget to share it with your family and friends as it may be something that can just help them on their own journey. And we love connecting with you, so come follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Pinterest and Google+. Plus. All you need to do is look for us under The Healthy Gut. On next week's show, I'm joined by Dr. Robin Kutka, who specialises in SIBO and other conditions like hormones. And she and I have an absolutely wonderful discussion, which personally I found so informative, about the role that hormones play in our lives and why for many people, hormones can be the missing link underneath what is going wrong in your system when conditions like SIBO don't get cleared quickly. So I'm sure you will find my interview with Dr. Robin Kutka next week extremely fascinating. I'll see you then. You've been listening to the Healthy Gut Podcast with your host, Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about the Healthy Gut or our podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. And as we are fully funding this podcast, if you would like to help support the continuation of this podcast so that we can continue to bring you future episodes, all you need to do is make a contribution at thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. 
We would like to thank Belinda Coombs for the production, editing and original music score of this podcast. To hear more of Belinda's music, head to soundcloud.com forward slash Belinda Coombs. The Healthy Gut Podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.